0: Right, when you asked me earlier, does all of this really matter? My answer was yes for setting the table, for starting the conversation. And if you can control the conversation, that's the most important thing. If you can tell other people what they should be talking about, what they should be focused on, and what's important right now, you're doing a lot more with a lot less work.
1: Hello, this is the Great Battlefield podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Jack Cacciarella. Jack is a digital political strategist and the founder of Pocketcast News. Jack is one of a new cohort of entrepreneurs who are figuring out how to connect social media influencers to progressive politics. While Jack is still in college, he already has forged a very eventful path. That includes interning with the Lincoln Project and then building his own sizable audience before working on Pocket Hest. If you're interested in how the political social media space is developing, you should listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Jack about Pocket Cast News.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Jack, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: My name is Jack Cacciarella. I am a progressive digital strategist. I work with only Democrats across the nation and up and down the ballot. I got my start working in national politics in 2020 when I worked at the Lincoln Project, which was a pretty formative experience for someone who's continued on in digital work and kept the same aggressive nature to the way that they do digital online. But I've continued working in democratic politics, working with Members of Congress, campaigns, and as a digital creator myself, to provide political commentary and share my thoughts on what's happening in in the digital space and in Congress every day.
1: So, if people wanted to find your commentary, where would they go? It's mostly Twitter.
0: Uh, even though I have tried out as a Gen Zer, I've tried out uh, TikTok, um, and I, I do use Instagram a bit, but Twitter has always been. I guess people call it X now, but I don't think I'll ever make that change. Um, <laughs> Twitter has always been the space that I've, I've enjoyed using the most for ease of access, for rapid response, and, um, and because I've always been more interested in, in writing than putting together the best pictures and posts and videos, writing has just always been the format that I've found easiest to express how I feel.
1: When did you first discover Twitter?
0: So I first discovered Twitter, funny enough, not because of politics, but I don't want to give myself too much credit, but a, a fairly good basketball player back in high school. And my coaches told me that I needed to get on Twitter to start communicating with coaches, with scouts, people who would be seeing my film that I'd be posting. And so I, I got on Twitter, uh, not to not to talk about politics, but to just share clips and highlights and start communicating with coaches. And that was back in 2016. And it wasn't until uh, 2019 when I started following Rick Wilson that I start to pay attention to more what was going on. And I would always cared about politics, but not necessarily paying attention to what was happening in the online organizing space as much.
1: That's kind of a fascinating way to get into Twitter. What high school did you play for? What position? How tall are you and what were your stats like?
0: So this is always, this is always funny. And I had this experience. I meet a a lot of, a lot of my friends that I've met in the political space I've met online and I always have the same first interaction with people. It's always, wow, you're, oh my gosh, you're really tall. So I'm, I'm 6'6", which has its pros and cons living in New York. I played basketball at Winter Park High School. If you know, Doc Rivers, Austin Rivers, his son was while he played at Winter Park, which is my alma mater.
1: Which Winter Park is that?
0: Winter Park High School in Orlando, Florida. So he was the number one, I believe, ranked player in the nation and then went on to Duke. And so we played against some pretty strong competition. And as the biggest guy on the team, I would always be the one guarding that really tough competition. (laughs) Guys who went on to play at Duke, Kentucky, Louisville staying in the state of Kentucky. Friends of mine who are now at Howard or... You know, South Carolina. Um, that's uh, that's how I. It's <laughs> funny enough that is how I yeah got my start on Twitter. I was recruited mostly by higher academic schools. It was the MITs, NYUs, Browns. But funny enough, my intent with getting on Twitter was to play basketball, and I decided I didn't really want to play basketball in college because I became so invested with working in politics that. By the mid to end point of my senior year, I was already working multiple campaign jobs doing digital consulting that I just figured if I wanted to take full advantage of the opportunities that I was being afforded as this young person, that I wasn't going to have three to four hours a day to be in the gym.
1: So are you talking about uh, by the time you were a senior in high school? In high school, that? yes. Yeah. Tell me how you got into that in the first place.
0: So it was through the Lincoln Project in 2020. I was going to be a field organizer with the Florida Democratic Party. I'd been paying attention to politics. I really cared about what was going to happen in 2020, but it was never in the digital space. I was, was always focused on going to farmers markets and registering people to vote or, you know, outside church on Sunday. So I was going to be a field organizer up until, of course, COVID took away our ability to be out in the field, which led me to you know, sit inside for about a month and then say, hmm, maybe I should I should figure something out <laughs> because I did have colleges to apply to. Not that that was the only reason, but I was like I probably shouldn't be doing nothing in this time. But I had been following Rick Wilson and Mike Madrid uh, and a couple other guys from the Lincoln Project on Twitter for a while just because, you know, I saw their announcement in 2019. I had always liked, obviously, Rick's fiery Twitter commentary, but I reached out to all of them, sent DMs, sent one to Mike Madrid got a response. I just said, I'm a big fan of, of y'all's work. I wanted to see if there's any need for interns at the Lincoln Project. And Mike got back to me he said, yeah, send us a resume. The next couple of days, I was getting an interview. And a week later, I I was joining an onboarding call with someone who's still a very good friend of mine and working in this space. His name is Jack Lobel, who's also a, a student here at Columbia. And we were two jacks getting onboarded as the I think tenth and eleventh interns at the Lincoln Project, and that number ballooned up to I think we had 200, 250 by the end. Wow! And so I, I was really lucky to not not only get in early, but to get in early with Mike, who was our political director at the time, and I kind of served as his executive assistant, which meant a lot of responding to emails <laughs> and a lot of putting together Excel spreadsheets. But it also meant that. We had a, a really open dialogue, everyone in, in the organization. And so I would just end up on Zoom calls, taking notes. And more often than maybe he should have, he would just throw it to me and say, Jack, thoughts? And I felt like I should chime in. And it wasn't until the first or second night of the, of the Republican convention that we had obtained you know, whatever speeches were going to be delivered, and, and we were leaking them. And it was one of the many fun campaigns that we that we did online. And I told one of our one of our people on the social side, is like, we need to like let's let's throw in a name for this. So I told him, let's make it the hashtag Leakin Project instead of the Lincoln Project. Which was just you know just a funny little joke. And the hashtag blew up and was trending that night. Maybe it made our our stuff do a little bit better. Better. Maybe it didn't. But it was the first time I had ever experimented with with social in any way. And I was just like, huh, okay, maybe I have some sort of knack for this. Maybe it's the fact that we had a hugely successful Twitter account that everyone was always, you know, checking in with and and maybe it's just a funny little joke, but it did well enough. Someone listened, someone posted it. People were using it. I could, you know, scroll through my own feed and see the impact of my own joke. And I kind of got hooked on that.
1: Before you go further, tell me more about working for Lincoln Project and what you thought of them as an organization.
0: My only experience with politics was going out with my friends and knocking doors, or when Hillary Clinton was running for president in 2016 with my mom knocking doors, I had never been around that political environment. I had never thought about national messaging and and just messaging in general. How do we get eyes? How do we get media attention? How do we attract people to, to what we're doing? How do we make an impact? And I was so interested with everything that they were doing, and and how not not just exciting it was, but but like kind of cutthroat, right? And and it just kind of felt so different. I would always love watching Stephen Colbert's monologue in the morning um, before I went to school in middle school and high school because I just liked the way that him more so than any of the other late night guys delivered. You know, political commentary in a in a jokey and kind of fiery way, and and, and it was that that really um, that held my attention the most. That that they were cutthroat, that they were you know, as we described ourselves, a, a pirate ship, and and that is what I what I found so fascinating about the organization. And I was like, if politics is going to be like this, then then I want to be doing this more.
1: Yeah, I've had Mike Madrid on the show, and I've had a number of other folks associated with it and they, and there's definitely a freedom that I think they had as sort of renegade Republicans to take swings and some of them are just verbally extremely adept and so it's they're, they're always kind of fun in that way people could differ about like how successful they were I'm not sure but they certainly got a lot of attention and probably gave a place for people like them to turn on the Republican Party. I wish there were more of them.
0: Absolutely. And I was always a, a Democrat. The fact that they were Republicans against Trump wasn't, you know, the reason that that drew me to them. I just in, enjoyed the organization. And, and this was certainly a, a feature of the 2020 election, but that they were just so focused on one goal. And all we ever cared about was our one goal of making sure Donald Trump was not going to be reelected. And that was the only thing that we were ever focused on. And we just had the freedom to try so much because we weren't restricted and every idea was a good one. Reaching this ultimate goal is is what was so interesting to me. And I think that's also what drew me to the digital space is that you have a lot more freedom to try and put your, your own spin on something different. And, and there's so many more opportunities to do that now on any given platform.
1: When did you create your own Twitter account and start? To seriously try to draw an audience,
0: so it wasn't really till January. I remember it was my first big tweet.
1: This is January of what year?
0: This is January twenty twenty one. So after the election, I I hadn't really you know been doing a lot of my own tweeting or trying to make any sort of political commentary or jokes up until up until after, and I wrote a tweet um, because it was I think January. Sixteenth, seventeenth. It was before the actual inauguration, but the Biden campaign held an inauguration for the first pets to be inaugurated. It was just some some hokey thing like that. Inauguration was trending, and this what's trending? Let's tweet about it. Became my philosophy for the growth of my account for the first year. But I just wrote some tweet and was like, "Oh, now that you know, Major Biden has been inaugurated. Lindsey Graham is no longer the first pet." Of the United States, and it was the picture of the Bidens with their dogs, and then the classic like Lindsey Graham looking down, looking sad with Trump picture. And I think it got like eighty thousand likes, and I had never gotten more than fifty likes before.
1: Did you get help from your friends with large Twitter accounts to do that?
0: I sent it to Rick, and I was you know because I was like, "Hey, do you think this is funny?" Um, and because yeah, I'd been used to just sending the guys any sorts of commentary. It was never you know from me, but. Oh, what should we do? Something with this? Is this funny enough for us to try to spin off? But it was kind of my first attempt at, am, am I kind of good at this? Do I have the touch? And so I did. I did get the initial uh, boost, which is why for all of my um, Twitter tweeting career, um, I've always tried to, as much as possible, be uh, be very generous generous with with my retweets as well. But it just it just took off, and and I kind of got addicted to watching the numbers go up. A thing that I had always liked about Twitter more so than the other social medias was just how interactive and, and now it was. And I remember just my my first time ever using it. I was like, oh wow, it's really interesting how you can see the numbers go from 79 to 82 to, you know, 85 is like the likes continue to go up in real time. I think that more than anything is, is what got me hooked at first, which, you know, kudos to whoever designed Twitter to do that it's definitely accomplished its goal.
1: Well, I, I look and see three hundred and sixty point two k followers and I think, okay, that's a lot of people.
0: It is, and it's it's kind of strange sometimes. I joke with a lot of my friends who are you know popular on Twitter and not as popular on other platforms. A lot of us have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and ten thousand Instagram followers. And I joke and say, you know if we had just chosen any other social media, to be good at, we'd have so much more money, right? It's like, if I had three hundred and sixty thousand Instagram followers, I would be making a lot more money. But it's just not as much of a community. It's not as interactive. I feel like Twitter is different in that way. And you know, I feel like the audience, maybe except for the first 30, 20 to thirty minutes of a tweet, your audience really doesn't dictate how far something will go. And that's what I liked about the platform at first. Is when I first started tweeting, even though I did get the help of of some people with some larger accounts every once in a while, I could have a very small following and still reach a lot of people, which I didn't find to be the case on other social platforms. But that that number being what it is now is still something that that I think is funny. And I and I forget about what I'm tweeting about the Lakers or, or something obscure, <laughs> and I for, forget how how visible. Um, I am sometimes.
1: Do you think this matters at all? What people are saying on Twitter and their size of their audiences? Do you think this is moving anybody in any direction that matters in the broader world of politics?
0: So people always say, and it's to an extent true tr- that Twitter isn't real life, but it, it does dictate how other important people act. I was never a person to look at my mentions and it was maybe because people can't spell my last name, so it's more difficult for them to at me on Twitter. It's a thing that, obviously, people running for Congress and athletes and world leaders, look they look at their mentions. They want to know actors, want to know what people are, are saying about them. So to an extent, those people are obviously impacted. But uh, I think to gin up a conversation in a place where all of the journalists of the world and anyone who has some sort of influence on that platform in real time, they're seeing it. I do think that has an impact. I especially do because, in my opinion, and as someone who, who is constantly online, I see all the, the content on Instagram and TikTok and other places usually originates on Twitter. A lot of the biggest political accounts on on Instagram at least, what they do is just kind of aggregate Twitter content and post it to Instagram. So I think it is the single best conversation starter platform. And that's why the damage that Elon has done to it has been so upsetting and, and, you know, so hurtful for gathering information. But in in a smaller sense, no. Sometimes I feel like what happens on Twitter doesn't matter. But in a larger sense, yes, because I just feel like it sets the conversation. And, and in a way that matters, it, it tells people what they need to be focused on And the same way that Ron DeSantis' campaign has been become you know, about him not being able to smile and wearing hidden heels. It's because that started on Twitter and the people who decide what we talk about kind of get their cues from Twitter to an extent. And so in, in that larger sense, yes, but sometimes in a much smaller sense now.
1: Yeah, I don't know if this, that's a great development for our world. You kind of mentioned that you got addicted to watching your numbers. I think that that kind of thing can happen in life in lots of different ways. If you're running a company, you can watch your numbers. If you're, you know, if you're uh, working in a nonprofit, you're you're paying attention to you know effectiveness and impact. There's so many ways in which the feedback loop of life can change your direction. How would you think this? trying to be successful online has changed your brain
0: i think it has dramatically i I try to to stay away from the number watching but when it initially started it was so addictive not i don't think because of that dopamine boost that is is generated by you know seeing you refresh and there's more likes and seeing numbers go up but because i had Spent all my life as either being a student or being an athlete. And so there's a bit of delayed gratification in studying and then being successful on an exam for a moment and then it's on to the next one or working really hard and spending an hour in the gym and you know, you're tired and exhausted and you hope that you got better, but how do you necessarily know it's going to translate? to the next game that you have, it's, it's a longer term process. But with Twitter, I could just very easily see if I wrote really well, it translated to lots of likes and I got followers. And every day I could really track the measure of my success and know that I was growing every day. I was working towards a larger goal, which at that time I didn't know what it was. I just kind of applied the, the idea of growth for the sake of growth is good. Right. If, if I'm if I'm growing, that's a good thing. I didn't know what the larger goal was, but I knew it would be useful someday. But it was just the – not the instant gratification of likes, but instant gratification of followers were going to mean something at some point. And I could very easily track that. And I could so easily see it go up every day. And, you know, I – in January and February and March of 2021, when I was trying to get to 10,000 followers – I was doing, you know, post-it note math, like how many do I have to get each day over the next 30 to get to this mark so that it's easier to get to that mark. And it just became something where you could really measure your success. And I think more so than just trying to find what's my voice on this platform, what's the best language to succeed, that is what I was obsessed with most. And maybe it's because my basketball season had ended and maybe it's because... I was done submitting all my college applications and, you know, high school, you know, those last couple months, once you've already applied to college, don't really matter that much. You're not, you're not really doing anything. But for the first time, I felt like I really had control of something that I was building to do with whatever I wanted with, and I could see my growth. And that was the most fun thing for me is that I knew what I was doing was building something.
1: How would you characterize your personal politics and how they have changed over time? I think I've become a lot more progressive. And I guess that's
0: just being online and learning. I see a lot of people in the Twitter space as being more progressive. And I think that's because we're constantly being challenged by each other. And I think people who are maybe you'd call it chronically online will be do more to make sure that what they're saying is based in some strong opinion that they can defend and that they have the ammunition to do so. And that's led me to have more progressive feelings on domestic and foreign policy. Would that have been the case if I wasn't on Twitter or online as much? I don't know, probably. I'm a young person at a, at a liberal arts school in New York City, so likely. Eric Swalwell said this about members of Congress who don't run their own Twitter accounts. He said, if you're a member of Congress and a reporter asks you a question, you should be able to answer it. So if people online are asking you that same question, why do you have your staff answering for you? right? So if you're going to be online pronouncing your opinions, you should be able to defend them and you should care to have the ability to, whether it's because I... Some some people would say I'm in an echo chamber or because I just want to defend my opinions and that's led me to to care about them. I hate the word research recently. It's just the, the do your own research has ruined that word for me. But to look into to why I feel the way I do and to look into specific policy um, more, I think it has made me more of a progressive, but that might just be being a young person.
1: So you first went to Dartmouth. How was that experience for you?
0: It was small. It was remote and it felt... Even the first time being there, I I tell my dad this story. The first couple nights, it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. It was new people meeting each other, very smart, very interesting people meeting each other. And because there were only, you know, a thousand students in a town of 10,000 in in Southern New Hampshire, it was only so many weeks and days before you kind of knew everyone and everything had kind of been tapped out. And so it must have been the third or fourth day or night. I, and I kind of thought to myself, I was like, oh, this might be the best that this might be. Like this night right now, and that's maybe the case for a lot of freshmen in college. I was like, this night of like, oh, look at all these interesting people that I've never met before and all these you know, opportunities. This is probably going to be the best that this is in terms of like a college experience. And then from there on, I was like, oh, it will probably be the same routine with people who have developed opinions on the very limited number of things and people here. And then we will kind of all fall into groups, and that'll be the end of it. As someone who, maybe to my own detriment, was focused on kind of anything but school, that might have put me at a disadvantage. And more so than just my my thoughts being away from college, I was you know often going on trips for political reasons that made me wake up at 4 a.m. to get on a four-hour bus, to get to the Boston Logan Airport, to fly another three hours to, to end up wherever I would. And so that just kind of had me separated from the community. That and the fact that it's of the liberal arts colleges, it's pretty staunchly conservative. And I was um, very vocally not, caused me some problems with some certain people. It's an awesome place, but I just kind of realized that what I wanted to do, and this is kind of a political philosophy of mine, wouldn't really be accomplished in that, in that one small area. I kind of felt like the what would be best for me was to always be able to chase kind of the national story and what was happening there and be involved at the national level as much as I could. And I, I didn't think I'd have that opportunity.
1: Anybody who looks you up on the internet will come across the circumstances of your leaving Dartmouth. That's gotta be very trying for you. Yes. Could you tell me the story in a succinct way, I don't want to drag you through, oh, yeah, it, but but I would just like to understand it. When I was reading about it, just preparing for the interview, I was like, "Oh no, uh, you know, should I be doing this with this person? What is the truth here?" And that's got to suck to be on the other end of it.
0: Yeah, and it, and it does. And I never fault anyone for having those those thoughts or concerns because it's just such a a strange situation. But for those who don't know and haven't Googled me, because again, my last name is very difficult to spell. There was a student named Nate Kim at Dartmouth who was in the same class as me, who had never met me and still hasn't. And he was probably more so online than me, but more in the 4chan, Reddit. I don't want to use the word incel, but spaces like that online in the more far right areas. But after I had a really viral moment when... Madison Cawthorn, who's a former Republican congressman from North Carolina, came to our campus for a college Republicans meeting. I went with a group of friends who all stood up and, you know, asked questions about his involvement with January 6th or other parts of his horrible ideology. And my clip of asking him, you know, why he attacked our democracy on January 6th went incredibly viral. I I watched uh, it it tens of millions of views across twitter youtube um, instagram tiktok all that uh, it was on msnbc i did interviews on it and it was a, just a, a big moment and i was really excited to have had you know me when i usually just kind of make those i don't want to call them attacks but you know when i go go at conservatives or republicans online it's only online but to actually be face-to-face with someone whose views I'd like to challenge, and it went so viral, it was really exciting to me. But only two days later, him being very upset that I I got this attention and that it was kind of disrupting to an organization that I guess he supported in the College Republicans, decided to go on to a site that no longer exists on Ivy League campuses. And I, at this point, can't even remember the name. Um, But it was a, a platform like Reddit, But it was completely anonymous and you could write things and no one could see who said it. No IP addresses. You could respond to your own stuff with complete anonymity. And he decided to start a rumor that there had been allegations of sexual assault against me, which had never existed and were completely unfounded. But he decided that that was going to be his best attack on me. And it was because Madison Cawthorn, who had just come to our campus, one of the reasons that I had spoken out against him coming, and other students had as well, is because he had actually had sexual assault allegations against him in his freshman year of whatever university he went to. So Nate Kim decided to come up with that as a way to attack me. To this day, I still don't know why. I don't know why he decided that it was me of all people who stood up that day and protested that he wanted to attack, but it was. Um he would continue to make up lies, create Twitter accounts, Reddit accounts to push this this narrative that he wanted to create and continue to do so, continue to do so until in the summer of 2022, we were able to figure out by connecting the dots, myself, friends, who it was making up these lies. We then took all efforts possible to subpoena the Reddit accounts, Twitter accounts, records at Dartmouth his behind anything all in between and finally get to new hampshire court for him to say yeah i made it all up and i did it with the intent to hurt you still something i can't believe to this day that someone would take that type of time and continual attack against someone to create lies in such a destructive and hurtful way not to me but to other actual victims of sexual assault is something I still struggle to understand this to this day, but no, it is, it is a difficult thing to deal with to explain to someone that one, no, no one has ever accused me of anything. And Two, it was someone who accused me of being accused of things. And the person who did admitted that they created those lies with the intent to hurt me after a big political moment. Um, and so it is a little bit of a difficult thing when obviously the, uh, this Scott Maxwell piece, and the Orlando Sentinel does a good job summarizing a very strange set of circumstances that led to those events. but it was certainly a difficult time.
1: I can't imagine I think that would shred me.
0: It was most difficult because you know and, and not that I want to spend spend too much time, because there there wasn't just a lot you could you could say. There was no person involved. There were no people. No one ever said anything negative about me. It was something that merely existed on the internet that I couldn't disprove because nothing had ever happened. And there was no person for months and months that I could say no to or know about or any instance because, again, like never happened. So I just had to try to wait until I could find out who was running these fake accounts. And as it turned out to be one. Individual man who had never met me before, and it was difficult because, as someone with family members who are survivors of sexual assault, I don't want to be dismissive of anyone's story. But again, again, what was most upsetting to me is this was hurting these actual victims by allowing a a lie to, to be used to dismiss them in, in circumstances. It, it was difficult to to not be able to to have my truth until. I was able to find out who was running these accounts.
1: Boy, you are now in a position where you better keep your nose clean, because if you ever give someone the chance to point the finger at you with any truth, you're doomed. You know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good thing that you know most of my time is 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 just spent in front of a computer screen. Then,
1: (laughs) well, sorry about that. It's hard to um, no, I'm, I'm
0: always I'm always happy and open to talk about it. And it's such a strange situation to to explain. Um, and you know, especially when it's one person who their only vendetta against you is your political stances and someone who's never met you. I'd invite anyone to read um, the Orlando Sentinel piece that Scott Maxwell wrote about the situation if my uh, explanation was still too convoluted he does a, he does a good job
1: was that the main thing that drove you in addition to uh kind of the size of dartmouth and the relative conservatism to columbia
0: yeah that was difficult but i kind of knew um like i said earlier in, in that first week that maybe this is all that there is to to, opt, to be offered here and my and my goal was still to just continue to to work in every level of politics as I as I possibly could, and I just wanted to be involved as possible. And I and I thought that trying to kind of play both lives at the same time, student and activists slash you know political strategist was wasn't going to be very viable. It's a different situation in in New York um, when I constantly have the ability to be engaging in politics, be meeting with people and a academic calendar structure that allows people to take more time to, to in, in follow their their own endeavors.
1: So, tell me about your political digital consulting career over this period of time and to now.
0: So, it, it started off um, in 2021 when I began working for a small pack in Florida called Retire Rubio. I just started doing their they're digital for them because i you know i reached out i saw that it was a it was a relatively large account that didn't tweet too often and was kind of talking about the same things that i was when i was first starting to grow on twitter and i thought people at, at lincoln did this i can do this and so i reached out through their dms i did my what i've come to term my twitter flirting to get them to follow me which was to just reply to a bunch of their tweets have their notifications on reply quickly at them and tag them and stuff. And and then they followed me. I was like, great, now I can DM them. I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about potentially doing digital for y'all. Um, they brought me on board and it was my first job, my first paid gig working in politics. And so I was like, if this is all it is, I'm happy here. But then I had a couple of people from a consulting firm reach out to me who knew. A couple of the people in the organization at Retire Rubio, and and they're like, "Hey, do you want to do more work? We have plenty of people that we'd love to sit you up with." And and I was still kind of shocked that more people would want me to do uh, do digital for them. But from there, it turned into it turned into campaigns, organizations, so on and such. And a couple months into to working for this firm, I kind of figured that I might be better working on my own. A friend of mine from the Lincoln Project, he. Brought to me the opportunity to work on Marcus Flowers' campaign, which he ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene in 2022. He brought the opportunity to me. He said, "They need someone to do digital." I love the work that you're doing now. I love working you with you Uh, when we were at Lincoln together. He brought it to me. I was able to land it. I brought it back to my firm and said, "Look, I've landed this work for us," and they said, "Great." And I said, "What's my pay raise going to be?" And they said, "None." And I decided, well, <laughs> I don't really think that's how this should shake out. And because I'd make about the same working just for them as I would for y'all. And I kind of want more freedom to to maybe figure this thing out on my own and, and build my own firm, build my own portfolio. I, I didn't even know what it was going to be, but I just kind of didn't want to be restricted in this. I decided to just start my own thing. And it was successful. And it was fun to have to figure it out on your own. And from there, I've just been more and more involved in one Twitter, but now Instagram, TikTok, and, and just the general advising of kind of helping people figure out what their voice is in all of these new emerging digital spaces.
1: What's your firm called?
0: It's called Politically Correct Strategies. I was uh, originally going to, to start it with, and I've, I've worked with a good friend of mine who you may know, Aaron Parnas. Um so his last name being Parnas, mine being Kacharal. We were working on our projects together when I started it. We thought PC strategies would be good. And so I had to come up with a name with uh, for it. And I thought politically correct, uh, as the joke I make, because we're not politically correct, but we're correct politically, would just be funny enough to get that sort of laugh of a, uh, and, and that's it. So
1: if you're in college and you have a viable financial employment already, it gets kind of tempting to just pursue that. That's like the Zuckerberg or Bill Gates model. Have you thought about dropping out and being a consultant full-time or what's your dedication to finishing the degree?
0: Um, I have, I have, and I have not. Um, in the times when I want to be uh, live tweeting the State of the Union, but I'm also you know, writing a paper or... <laughs> It was even last weekend when I was writing a, a paper for a class and it was just the, the third or fourth time I had had to write about, you know, Plato's Republic and Aristotle's politics and kind of just do the same again and again. It's difficult to bring yourself to do it when you know that there's other opportunities out there that you want to be you want to be tackling,
1: but There is some value to getting through the education. But there's
0: also some value to getting through the education. And there's some value in doing things that you don't want to do. And I'm sure that a lot of other college students have a lot of other stuff that they want to be doing instead of getting their work done. But for me, as a political science student, a lot of what I'm doing that I don't want to be doing is writing. And I don't know if it was... Hemingway, who said, you know, writing's easy. All you have to do is sit down, take out your piece of paper and pen and open up a vein. But <laughs> yes. writing is the most important thing to me. Writing is, is the end all be all, right? If you can figure out how to write, you can figure out how to craft messaging. If you can figure out how to build structure, you can craft messaging. And if you can figure out how to write succinctly, you can craft messaging. So, you know, if all I'm spending my time doing is, is writing, then it is worth it. I also love being here. And you know I'm very thankful to Columbia because it's uh, more affordable to go to Columbia than it is to live in New York. Uh, For me, (laughs) paying for college, the way that room and board and and my meal plan works out, uh, I think it would be running me a little bit more to live here than it would to just learn here. I thought about that um, for half a second, and then I thought, I can't waste this opportunity. If I had founded Facebook instead of politically correct strategies maybe, but maybe it doesn't need all my time and effort.
1: Well, you're pretty early, even though you've been doing this sort of stuff for a while, pretty early in your career as a digital strategist in politics. But what do you think are the main things that you've learned that you could convey to other people?
0: I've learned this and I've also been been given this advice a lot, which is be okay with it changing. I would always be fine with the thing changing. I got into political strategy thinking that I, as a digital strategist, could be hired by lots of different campaigns, candidates, issue campaigns, whatever, and that I could make my living potentially going forward, working for a lot of different people. Then I considered, hmm, maybe I might just want to work for one person, and give my all, all my attention to someone who I really believed in. But of course, it would have to be someone that I really believed in their future. And you would be making a little less doing that. And now I've seen the development of the political consulting space, at least on the digital side, shift away from the hiring out of consultants to write copy and kind of tell candidates or members what to do in front of a camera into more of the hiring of advocates and creators in the political space to share their message. And I find that the digital strategy is all happening in-house because campaigns are now seeing this is kind of the most important thing, is our digital comms. So I've kind of allowed my perspective to shift from, I need to be a person who is hireable to lots of people, to I need to figure out how to cultivate and work with people and creators in the political space who are hireable to lots of different campaigns. So instead of doing this just as an individual, I see it more as a creator space that people need to be working together in. Um, and so that's kind of been my shift as I see the digital space changing.
1: How did you meet Stuart Perlmutter, who introduced us?
0: So him and I met through a, through a friend of mine who you may be familiar with, Annie Wu, who worked on John Fetterman's campaign, uh, tremendously successful and, and smart, just so sharp as a, as a digital strategist. She introduced us. She's worked with Stuart and advocacy, his organization. He was one of the people who kind of changed my mind in, in the direction that I was thinking that the digital world was going in. They do work with creators. They do work with political creators, connecting them to candidates, campaigns, issues, all the different stuff that's important to them in the progressive space. So him and I met each other, funny enough, through a political creator. And our relationship inside politics has been formed through... Our mutual love of figuring out where the creator space is going, right? And how to be on the cutting edge of not just being successful with an organization, but being successful and making creators in, in, in a singular unit that is able to accomplish a goal better being together than being separate. Because we both recognize that people have their own distinct voices, have their own distinct ways of reaching their audience, and have their own distinct audiences, which is great. But if we can all tell, a sort of uniform story in our different way. Then one, we can reach the audience better, and two, we can make the issue more important to that audience in a way that, if they're seeing it again and again and again, they'll want to talk about it to other people, right? So, uh, a kind of idea that both of us have have understood is that once you get something trending on Twitter, it's doing free advertising for you. Because when I first started on Twitter and I wanted to grow my page, I knew that if I tweeted about what was trending, then more people would see it because of the algorithm would boost it or people would click on trending topics and see it. And so what we've kind of understood is not only building a a unit of a message is great for amplifying that message, but once you have a a group of people who not only their audience, but other creators kind of get their strategy and their messaging from... um, Does it become more prescient and important, but other people are going to want to talk about it and feel like they should talk about it because it's in this conversation that's being said, right? When you asked me earlier, does all of this really matter? My answer was yes, for setting the table, for starting the conversation. And if you can control the conversation, that's the most important thing. If you can tell other people what they should be talking about, what they should be focused on and what's important right now, you're doing a lot more with a lot less work. You know, not to continue this this run on kind of a rant, but when I always tell anyone who I consult with who's who's trying to grow or maybe emerge as a star in the in the digital space, specifically with members of Congress, is you know the example of Katie Porter. Katie Porter isn't viral because her tweets when she's grilling a bank, you know, about how much they're spending on bonuses instead of paying their their employees. Those moments aren't viral because she posts it and it gets twenty thousand likes. It's viral because other people share it. And other people want to share those moments that she has. They know they'll get likes for them. And so when other people want to share your stuff is when it becomes viral. Right. And so I always encourage people to think about how can you create content that starts a conversation about you? right? And so that's a lot of what we're trying to accomplish and what obviously they've been tremendously successful in accomplishing.
1: Do you worry that that uh, members of Congress and other politicians and actors in this space chasing attention like this turns people into show horses instead of workhorses was the old terminology?
0: So I'd say when individuals do it, yes, but when messages do it, no. So I think a perfect example of of kind of what you're getting at there is what was Matt Gates trying to accomplish and ousting Kevin McCarthy? Obviously he has a personal grudge against him, which lots of people do. So I don't have a problem with him for that, but he wanted to be on TV more, right? He wanted the emails that he sent out for donations to get more clicks. So did Nancy Mays. And you could tell because her first step, her first stop after that vote was with Matt Gates on Steve Bannon's podcast, she wanted attention. She wanted donations. She wanted more clicks. And so when it becomes about clicks and attention instead of any actual goal, which was a lot of the Republican struggle.
1: Well, maybe he got his goal of a, of a more right-wing speaker.
0: That's also definitely the case. And he was certainly successful if that was his goal. But I'm not sure if that was his goal at first. I'm not sure if he expected to get a more right-wing speaker. And and I'm not sure what he'll accomplish through having a more right-wing speaker because are they going to pass anything different than Kevin McCarthy would have? Are they going to be any more effective? I'm not sure if he cares about being effective. I think a lot of these people, especially on the right, care about being influencers. That's why Ted Cruz has a podcast. They want to be influencers. They want to be TV personalities. And that's why, not to give him any credit, but I think Vivek Ramaswamy is setting himself up the best out of anyone in this current, you know, whatever you want to call this primary. I don't even want to call it a primary because Trump is running away with it so much, unfortunately. Um, But he's setting himself up the best because he's making himself a media personality. He is the one out of all these non-Trump candidates who has the most clips online from podcasts or interviews that he does that constantly circulate because he's
1: always- He seems like the one who least merits attention. And he does least
0: merit attention, but he's the one who's best at finding the ways to keep his name going, not through having to say more, but having this this just you know, horde of clips stored for people to push for him. And that's a really successful method of you know having your message constantly be out there without having to necessarily say new things. When it's a message that you're trying to push, right? When when you're trying to get everyone on a single message whether it be about a piece of legislation that is trying to be passed, whether it be about stopping Republicans in in Wisconsin from trying to impeach a newly elected Supreme Court, state Supreme Court justice. When it's on one message that we're trying to cultivate people around, I don't think it becomes more about the show. When it's about a person, certainly it does. But I think when it's a message, it it doesn't.
1: When you're talking about Stewart and advocacy, I was wondering if you were contemplating your own similar organization, I would think he would think of you as a content creator. That was one of his many content creators that he's trying to align the way you were talking about it, put yourself on that same frame of mind. So how how do you think of yourself vis-a-vis at advocacy and that relationship?
0: Well, i think that what Stuart Dunn is, has done is, is incredible. And I think he's just so far ahead of kind of really anyone in the space with, with what his organization is doing. The work that that I'm hoping to accomplish in, in unifying creators, it isn't necessarily in conflict, of course, with what Ed advocacy is doing, because I, I love working with them, but I want to work in, in in sync with them. I think that they've created a space to bring creators together in a single message. What I wanna do is to put a platform for creators to be boosted in sharing that message. So I think there's a lot of great creators who, if they don't know how to monetize, they don't really know where to go.
1: So are you talking there about Pocket Cast News?
0: I am, yes.
1: So, uh, tell, me, so tell me, what's the founding story for Pocket Cast News? What are you up to there?
0: The founding story for Pocket Cast News is uh, over the summer. I launched a progressive media organization, obviously called Pocket Cast News, and the idea kind of was, like I said earlier, some of the best accounts on Instagram are just that people follow for their political news, or just aggregators. Right? They're just let me find the best tweets um, about a given story or a news event that's happening, and that's it. And those creators, you know, they get tagged and they get their tweet shown, and that's really nice. and but they don't get really get a lot more out of that. They don't get a piece of the potential monetization pie. They don't get a piece of um, you know, possibly working with other creators who are talking about the same story to shape a narrative. So in my mind, there is a space for political creators to be amplified as they grow and work together to share a single message. So it's not one person thinking or looking and saying, okay, what are the best tweets on this topic that I want to share? But a group of people saying, how do we craft our message? together and, and push that out. And in doing so, amplify each other. And so that's kind of what I want to be accomplishing with Pocket Cast. I think there's a great opportunity for an umbrella organization to house political creators, to help them grow together when they all want to be sharing similar messages. I think that in the same way that I said that lots of people just on Instagram, they post Twitter content of other people or other people's TikToks. I think people should be getting credit for that. And I think that people should be growing from that. And I think that political creators need to be engaging together to boost each other's messages so that growth can happen.
1: How's it going so far?
0: I'm really happy with how our growth is going. Instagram has been my main focus right now. Although our our Twitter is successful, we have more than 100,000 followers on Twitter, having launched in the summer, about 70,000 on Instagram now, which is the platform that I, I give most of my attention to just because it's the easiest to collaborate and it's oftentimes the most difficult to grow. You know, I said that what was so great for me, as someone who was trying to grow on Twitter, is that all it really takes is a retweet. And it's a lot easier to direct followers to someone on Twitter than it is on any other social media platform. But Instagram is a place where I think we need to figure out how to, how to more directly message because it's such a contingency of of young voters our audience is about 65% 14 to 30 and the 30 to 35 is another 10 15%. So there's a large audience of young people on there who is my greatest focus because I think it certainly needs to be tapped into more but we've grown tens of thousands almost 100,000 followers on the couple of months since since launch. And again my goal is to is to create a space where our creators can come together and figure out how to more successfully grow on all platforms. And, you know, when, when you're someone like I was who kind of figured out how to grow on whether it be Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whatever platform it may be, it's kind of difficult to figure out then what are the next steps? What do I do with this? If it's really successful, should I try to make it a career? Should I try to make money off of it? How do I engage with people? How do I have a community? How do I? communicate with other creators. What do I do with this platform and this message that I have? And that's kind of a space that I want to be able to create where people can come together, stay on a message that they care about, share it broadly and and help other people grow doing the same.
1: So is that a business? I think it is. Explain what you sell and to whom. Well,
0: the first thing you sell is advertising, right? So you figure out we have a website that makes money. We're about to have a monetized YouTube channel, uh, have a monetized TikTok account, have a monetized Instagram. Twitter makes the money that does being monetized. So first you sell ad space. And the second, you work with organizations like Ad Advocacy and say, we have a creator who is growing, who is doing great work for us. And because they have 50,000 followers, but and maybe that's not typically enough for someone to pay to have them share a message. We will, as a collective, have multiple people with 50,000, 10,000, 100,000, so on and such followers, and we'll work as a united front, right? So instead of paying for these individuals, we'll work as a group through PocketCast to share a message. Right. And it's not doing that necessarily through the media outlet, but it's doing it through the connected group of creators who would be sharing that message anyway. That
1: sounds an awful lot like ad advocacy, doesn't it? Except that it doesn't, it's not a, like you have a site and a news feed, and he's trying to take a client and push a message out through a set of creators, if I understand correctly.
0: Yeah. And so the difference, well, not the only difference, but the way that we'd work in collaboration is they'd be the one who are coming to us with client opportunities, right? So we're not the one finding those clients.
1: You're one creator, except you're an aggregation of creators that exactly. is there for the hiring.
0: Yes. yes. And because you're able to work in that sense, not only making money because, you know, lots of online political organizations and or, you know online only news outlets make, you know, significant profits just off of monetization via YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, so on and such, Snapchat, all of that. And so what we want to be able to do is also provide creators who are maybe not making enough off of their monetization alone the ability to then work with organizations like ad advocacy.
1: There are quite a number of media outlets or self-styled media outlets on the left. ShareBlue, now I think American Journal News, Occupy Democrats. There are lots of places that share something like news for a progressive audience that have a similar mission. Have you looked around at that space? How do you feel like you fit in amongst that crowd?
0: In that space, I see organization. In ours, they say creators and individuals. So right now, you know, we have a Substack newsletter. We have an Instagram feed. Um, we have lots of things that we could sell subscriptions on, right? You can sell subscriptions on Instagram right now. I wouldn't do that because I I don't want anyone to subscribe right now to our organization. I want people to subscribe to creators, right? So my idea is that if we can build a larger organization with a larger audience that we know cares about progressive issues, we can then feed them progressive creators in a way that will be more beneficial for those creators. So, if you're someone who writes a really great newsletter, right, then come on ours, be a featured. And, you know, obviously this idea isn't new.
1: In a certain way, Substack is that idea, although it's not, a, it's not uh, politically driven, right? Mm-hmm. It's a platform for people sharing their independent writing. Yeah. yeah. But
0: for us, it's more, we have an audience. We can send that audience to you very easily. Come join us and take a share of, you know, what we'll bring in through monetizing our content, but we have a built-in audience. And, and that's sort of the idea, is that when we bring a lot of people together, we'll be able to you know, raise all of these creators up via each other's audiences and continue to share them.
1: Do you have a sense of how big it needs to get for it to support you? It's, what do you mean in the sense of support? Financially you? support you.
0: It, me as an individual or as the Yeah, as the you as the
1: founder of it.
0: Um, I haven't even begun to... Th- think about like at what point I would want to start making this my only career.
1: So your main source of income is the consulting still. Mm-hmm. And and but, you don't even, and you're still a student. So it's not like this has to so be it's, all, all you do. It,
0: it's not that dire. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but uh, I just, I see that there are a lot of people who have incredibly tapped in audiences who, if they knew how to go to that audience and say, I now have a newsletter that I'm writing and I'm able to do so, and I'm able to monetize it because there's an organization set up to, here is a Patreon account. Here is a paid sub stack that you can subscribe to. Here is the infrastructure, like now I don't have to create an LLC. Now I don't have to hire someone to help me with my books. Now I don't have to do so on and such, right? because there's a built-in organization, a built-in media digital organization on the left to help creators do that under a larger umbrella. They'll be able to do that. And I also see the people who want to grow doing that coming to a similar organization. People who are already had success, but maybe not in, in, in the same larger way, but you know, who we can identify as creators coming to that organization and, and wanting to be a part of it, knowing that there is an audience that will want to hear them once you know they tap into it.
1: There are a lot of... Creators who have more than the 100,000 that you so far have put together, there, what size do you need to be for it to be really appealing to people who've already found substantial success in finding followers like you have done independently?
0: Well, I think there's the element of if someone has 300,000 Twitter followers and they want to start a YouTube channel and they think that they could do. You know, they think that they could be successful with it. It's going to take a while for them to monetize that, right? It's going to take them a while to figure out how to edit. It's going to take them a while to find consistency with a schedule. And maybe now they're going to have to hire out an editor. So maybe size isn't the most important thing that we'll be able to offer at scale. But, you know, ease of access to new forms of creating.
1: And maybe expertise in making those leaps.
0: Exactly. And, and more so than anything, we want to just serve as a, as a connective tissue within the community, you know, to other political creators that you can work with, to access to interviews with members of Congress, to access to interviews with campaigns. In the same way that, you know, Stuart and Ad Advocacy know that once you create a larger connective, you can have a bigger message and a stronger message. We want to build a community. I don't just see it as, uh, as monetizing strictly off, off ad views, but, you know, but everyone kind of sharing in that pie. We'll grow it together.
1: Do you think an effort like this should be located in the party or why does it make sense for it to be independent?
0: It makes sense for it to be independent because I think creator attachment to the party makes it more difficult for people to be content creators. The most important trend in like political media right now is people don't want CNN as much as they want, you know, Anderson Cooper right? People don't care about organizations as much as they care about people and creators. This authenticity that you see people striving for as much as possible on TikTok is is so important. Videos that do best are of of people sitting in their cars. Let's say you want to share a message and you wanted it to be successful on TikTok. And you are going to deliver it in the same way, you know, the same audio quality, whatever. And you said, I can sit in the room that I'm in now, I can be in my office that I'm in right now. I can be in my bedroom, I can be in a park, I can be in front of the Capitol, or I can be in my car. A hundred times out of a hundred, tell you to do it in your car. Because there's something about being in a car that feels very personal to people. And there's something about holding a camera in a way that you're on FaceTime that feels very personal to people. And there's something about speaking into a very tiny, weird looking mic that you see more on TikTok now than ever, or speaking into wired Apple headphones instead of AirPods with a poor sound quality that people like more now. And it's because it feels authentic, it feels real, and it feels like people are communicating to people. And I think that's what people want more than anything, is to have their news, which you know, there's a million different definitions of what that is now, but their political commentary delivered to them from creators. And you can get that on Twitter for free, and you can get that on Instagram for free, or you can help support that person. It's a lot easier to go to an organization that has expertise in in helping someone create that that space where they can make money and maybe make a living off of political commentary than maybe doing it on their own.
1: So our conversation so far has been pretty esoteric for probably a broader audience of people who are not steeped in the latest in digital and online creator worlds stuff. I don't think I articulated that in the best way, but something like that. For people who are one step removed from that or more, can you explain what you're up to and why it is something they should pay attention to?
0: Yeah, I think that the movement towards social media as the greatest source of news isn't impactful because of the changing of Twitter or how we feel about Meta or any number of reasons. I think it's impactful because social media is curated and social media is individual. And if people are going to get their news from individuals, then we are seeing the second coming of media stratification, right? We saw you know cable break up into a million different things, we saw you know, three channels to a thousand, and now we're seeing people deliver news. And if people are going to deliver news, then we need to support those people and one, making sure that they're able to do so effectively and truthfully and honestly. And we need to support those people by giving them community because as a political content creator myself, as I know from others, it's very difficult, especially in this news environment, to continue to talk about this stuff for your mental health. And so I think that although people will go to individuals, I think individuals will need community within the political space now more than ever as they're doing this kind of on their own and tackling independent journalism and figuring out what that means and what their impact means uh, in a media environment that is as crazy as it is and feels as high stakes as ever as it does. So why is it important? Well, cuz things are changing again and people are inheriting the power of that change. It's not big media corporations, it's individuals. And we have an opportunity to assume that power and use it for good in a way that the internet has afforded us. And so I think we should take every opportunity to figure out how to best do that and how we're reaching the right people every single day
1: in a certain sense a big media operation like cnn is a a agglomeration of different hosts and different opinions it's very analogous i think to having a group of creators right except that there is a a layer and a structure of editors and fact checkers and culture of, of journalism around that, which obviously varies by the type of organization you're talking about, like the Washington post, probably more diligent in its fact checking than MSNBC or something. I don't know how to rank them. If you were successful to a large degree and had a huge number of people doing this kind of work, and therefore a growing responsibility to make sure that your people aren't spreading misinformation. To what degree do principles of journalism start to necessarily need to be employed to get this right? If you're ambitious about this, which you seem like that kind of guy, and things go well, how do you plan for responsibility and scale and culture and all the things that one wants when you build an organization.
0: And that's something that I've I've thought about and, and continue to think about as, as we approach, you know, growing with lots of different individuals and, and what those principles look like. But I think that's kind of built in to the process of, of who we'd want to, to join, who we'd want to be under that umbrella of an organization. And, and I say under the umbrella of an organization instead of hired by and employed by, because I, I don't necessarily see Pocket Cast News being a corporation with structure in the sense that CNN is, because I don't think that corporations in the new media should exist in the same way that they did in the old. Because I think it's about individuals. And so now we're getting into a co- uh, conversation more about, you know, labor. But I think that a, a pocket cast news should exist only in and to make money off only in, in a way of what it brings to creators. Right. I don't think it should make money by taking from creators. I think it should make money off of the benefit that it gives to creators. Right. So, and and I promise I'll I'll answer the other part of the question, but if you have a podcast that you've done for 50 episodes and it has a thousand listeners, you obviously are committed enough to doing it every week. Where we come in is we are able to advertise, which is the most important thing in the world. It's what keeps us all going. It's advertising. It's all of the dollars in the world. We are able to advertise you to our audience and us grow you, Right. And now that we've grown your podcast, we're able to bring our creators on and share our message that progressives think is important and able to obviously make money to sustain it. So we should only be benefiting in the financial sense off of what we're able to bring to you, which is a greater audience.
1: Isn't that what Fox News brought Tucker Carlson?
0: You could say that, but is is Tucker as important without, you know, the the, the six o'clock slot he had?
1: Well, he, no, because they because that was something that Fox offered him. You are the Fox in this case. I mean, obviously not but, politically. And so
0: and so <laughs> thank you. But in my mind, we wouldn't be the Fox.
1: I view it this way, and I promise I'm going to
0: answer the question that you originally posed because I think it's an incredibly important one. But I don't want I don't think news happens in an hour anymore, right? You can talk about how many people watch this hour, but on YouTube and TikTok and now Instagram reels or whatever, you can track how many watched hours a video has. And I think that's the much more important metric. Not how many people tuned in at a certain time, but I think that now that we're able to accumulate lots of hours on one story, that's more important. So I don't want to offer people the ability to just fit in at a time slot. I want to give them an audience that they can then either be successful with or not and carry on. It kind of goes back to the opportunity, and maybe I'm just building it all out from there, but it kind of goes back to the opportunity that I was afforded by getting the first couple of free tweets from Rick Wilson. And it's a principle in physics that it takes you know more force to get an object moving than it does to keep it moving. And so I think that if you are the first person to supply someone an audience, because maybe they don't have a 100,000 Twitter followers, and they're not able to Direct people to whatever piece of long form media that they do really successfully that people would want to listen to. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't have an audience, but how does that person find an audience? And I think they find an audience in us, right? Something that I think I know how to build is a platform. I know how to build an audience. Maybe, and you know, now I'm getting into a lot about myself here, but what I found with my Twitter account is I don't think I necessarily built that much of a community because it was never really my focus. I was never focused in like, here's the lore about myself. Here, get to know more about me. And maybe that was a fault. Maybe I should have done that. But but what was really important to me was making interesting political commentary that people found funny or fiery or important at that time. But I, I never thought, and maybe it was because it was written word instead of video, people ever really associated with me that much. So what I find that I can build successfully is is a platform where people know that they can get information from, right? And so I never saw myself, although I am a political creator, I think I'm much more successful at figuring out what is the structure of a platform? How should we write? How should we create video? How should we structure the way that we say things? How should we put together, you know, Instagram slides that are the most shareable, the most interactive, and that'll, you know, get the most views, through a certain algorithm. I think that's what I'm best at creating. I think the consulting on telling people how to change their content and fix it in the specific ways that reach a bigger audience without changing them as a person, but just changing the way that they interact with the social platforms is I think the thing that I'm most successful at. And so I can be most successful at that working with other people. And I think I can build an audience to then give those people who most deserve it, but maybe have so far been unable to reach it. And that's my ultimate goal, is finding people who are great communicators, are great messengers, have important and thoughtful takes. But sometimes it takes you five years to get there. It takes you five years to gain the YouTube audience, to gain the podcast audience, sometimes gain the Twitter audience or Instagram audience, just because it takes time. How can we get an audience to those people now? Because now more than ever, we need those creators and we need those voices.
1: Sometimes I think that the size of audiences is... Is inversely related to the seriousness of the person writing. Obviously, not true as a generalization, but if you maybe put the scatter plot up, you might see that, right? That long form, complicated, nuanced, thoughtful writing has a smaller potential audience out there than the hot take if you were going to advise somebody who wanted to have impact but like find the right balance in in sort of am I going to communicate in 150 characters or am I going to communicate in a book and how outlandish am I going to be what advice would you give to a creator about where to find themselves
0: that's a great question because you know, you could definitely say that the shorter, the easier, right? If it's easier to make viral tweets than it is a viral book without any help, but how to figure it out. It's an interesting question because it really is the dynamic of, do you feel better speaking in front of a camera, or writing down your words? And then how long do you feel comfortable speaking in front of a camera? Because what success means online could be different for people. I wanted to focus on the singular metric of growth because I knew that if I had more followers than when I retweeted my clients and when I wanted to share a message, it could reach more people. I think the largest ad buy in podcasting history was on a podcast with 30 listeners, but it was about medical device sales. And so some medical device sales company wanted to plug their specific I'm not even sure if this is true it's a thing that I've heard but they wanted to you know make an ad buy for the most important people who would potentially buy one of their 2 million dollar product and so that audience of 20 people was more important than an audience of you know 50,000 for something more generic so what I'd say to creators is is what's your why why do you want what you want why do you want a large audience
1: who are the people that you want to listen to
0: and for what Why do you want them to listen to you? What is the next action that you'll take? Because I wanted to build something large and albeit maybe generic. I talk about national issues, right? Because in my mind, national politics always mattered most and every issue has been nationalized. And that's true. But if you want to sell a specific thing, if you want to think about a specific topic, then develop your audience from there. Figure out what your niche is. But if you think you can be a person with appeal, then be that person with appeal, right? Just be yourself as a creator and talk about the things that you want to. I've had a lot of discussions with members and people running for office. And the question has been like, should I share more about me? Should I talk about like the Vikings game?
1: Um, Should I be more like AOC? And and I said to them, it's like, well, one, if you want to
0: talk about the Vikings game, it's like, do you think Josh Dobbs is going to be a good quarterback? But I said, well, only if you think that that's something to offer. Some of the most successful members of Congress, we don't know their names, but they write our bills. They're there to write the legislation. A lot of members of Congress don't, but there's a lot of members of Congress who write our legislation and we don't know their names and they're reelected and they don't need to necessarily do the Twitter thing. And so a lot of people have come to me asking to do to help them do the Twitter thing. And I've said no, because I I wouldn't be able to. My expertise is not on crafting their specific set of policy to make it more interesting to a national audience, because sometimes it's just not going to be. But the question of should I be AOC, like you said, has a lot to do with who you are. If you think you're a charismatic person with broad appeal to a mass audience, and that's something that you actually do have to look at and say, am I, then try to be. Try. See if people are responsive to you. It's not difficult to tell whether or not they are. A couple months in, you'll be able to figure that out.
1: Jack, I've talked to you a lot longer than I anticipated. Is there something that I failed to ask you that I should have?
0: I just want to say one of my favorite uh, interviewers, his name is Ryan Rossillo. He's a sports podcaster. And you can hear very definitely in all of his interviews, when they finish speaking, he lets just the full second go and then begins his thought. Um, Maybe it's as to not interrupt, which I think is often the case. Maybe it's to think. But that distinct second of just let that rest is, I think, is something that's important. And
1: also sometimes person says something else.
0: Something else. I mean,
1: that um, might be valuable.
0: Yeah. Is there anything that you didn't ask me that I want to talk about? I think it, we've
1: covered a lot of it. I mean, the reason that that I find it interesting is because through you and through other people like you, I get at more of an understanding, and I hope to share more of an understanding about how our politics is changing, at least through this online lens and through the way people like you who are political entrepreneurs are modifying the system and trying to direct it in certain ways. And I think that is part of the story of our time. It's happening whether or not you make specific decisions. You're like one element of a huge, huge ecosystem of things going on. But hopefully it helps people understand some of the change that's out there
0: i I do too i think that a, a lot of the change or at least what i try to think about is again to just give consideration to what are the things that people want and what does that mean what does that mean about those people right why do videos of people sitting in their car speaking to you do better Well, it's because it's an authentic and kind of different and casual setting. People are
1: allergic now to marketing, to advertising, to things that are carefully concocted or too polished or like, and that is because a lot of that stuff is not in their best interest. And the hazard is, of course, that as you learn and as your cohort learns to evade that, the more successful practitioners, the Nikes and the Apples and, and the politicians, they figure out how to pretend to be authentic.
0: Yes. And, and it's what I I call the emergence of the paid earned media. And it's a thing that I try to think about. And, you know, if for me, obviously, you know, I want to have a, a successful career in which I'm able to make enough money to live in and doing media and doing political consulting and if i'm thinking of the thing that i want to make money but is the progressive values and you know the progressive ideology that i want to see flourish online what's the way to incorporate it and have it permeate without people noticing right what's the pattern media of that how do i sneak in the progressive ideology to entertaining and fun news content
1: a lot of people working on that, Jack.
0: And and exactly. Okay. Uh, and so that's my thought. But to close, I, I think a lot of people are observing what do people want and why. And I'm glad that we do. I guess, you know, everyone through history has. I'm glad that at least in the political space, we're, we're trying not we're not trying to say, well, we're going to give people this. But start to think about what do they actually want? Maybe more so than it has before.
1: Do you ever think about running for office yourself? No. That was a quick no for a smooth talking entrepreneur.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No. um, Well, the last time we had one of those, uh, he tried to hold on to political office. Um, I say no um, because I really hope that, and this is going to make me sound terrible, but I hope people like me who are kind of smoother talking, tall, like what you would expect a typical politician if you were making a movie in, it's the, all white in the early 2000s. Yeah. 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 I, I hope there's less of us. There's other stuff to do besides run the government. Um, and I hope it's more – my representative is, is Maxwell Frost.
1: He's almost your age.
0: And he's almost my age. And aside from being a first-gen member of Congress, he was just a guy. right? He was just a guy in the organizing space, and he spent his time organizing and he spent his time with people and he didn't spend his time carefully crafting his ambition to run for president. He he was just a person. He was a young guy who knew enough about organizing and he's an incredible, like he's a great politician, but he was just a, a person who cared about the issues and decided he was going to run for office because we now have more tools to help regular people get elected. I mean, like people who didn't go to you know Harvard or Yale Law and have a couple hundred thousand from whatever their family mm, to start their campaign and just more regular people. Um, And I, I hope that's what our government continues to look like.
1: Jack, very enjoyable to talk to you. Anything else you want to say?
0: Pass laws to make free school meals universal. So that's my closing thought.
1: I appreciate that.